Welcome, neighbor, to Folk U Radio, Folk University's talk show, taking old school viral. I'm your host, Manda O'Fox Gillespie. It's embarrassing, all the stupid things I can think of to think about. Is there anything that could really bring? Hello, neighbor, and welcome to Folk U Radio 101, where we ask our neighbors, what do you know? Today's show is Lessons in Governance, Ecology, and Protecting Rural Character, What Northern Salish Sea Islands Can Learn from the Islands Trust Model. The Islands Trust is a unique federation of 13 major islands and more than 450 smaller islands. That's more than 20,000 people that live in the southern part of the Salish Sea. First, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge this place that we call home. Where are you listening from today? Who are the people that have walked and cared for the land where you live, work, and play? Cortez Community Radio sits on the unceded territorial lands of the Klahus, Slyaman, and Hamalco peoples. I'd like to thank this land, the people who have walked this land through time, and those that continue to love and work and honor this place we call home. So today we have a show that is of great deal of interest to me, at least, if, if nothing else. <laughs> I like to have shows that I will be interested in and maybe my mom, wherever she is. Um, so today we're going to talk a little bit more about Islands Trust. So in preparation, I did a little bit of, or I have my own interest and did a little bit more research into land trusts and what these are Um, and whether or not an island's trust would actually be considered a land trust I do not know but I think this model um, is really starting to make change around the world so most people I think when they think of land trusts think of a conservation land trust where a nonprofit organization holds land or conservation easements for the purpose of preserving open space natural areas farm forests, etc. But land trusts can be a lot more than just that. They can also refer to any nonprofit or governmental or community organization that owns and manages land for some type of community benefit. For instance, there are also community land trusts which are responsible for developing land, often to ensure long-term affordable housing or other purposes that will benefit a community. There are also real estate investment trusts Um, lands held in trust by the government for a specific community's benefit, and more. So today, as I was preparing to uh, leave for this show, I I happened to get an email from the Schumacher Center, and they've been doing a series on land trusts. And today they were looking at European models of land trusts. And one that stood out for me was one that um, was a number of, of land trust models that are happening in Scotland, 
And there they began to use land trusts as a way to deal with severe land inequity issues. Over half the country's privately owned lands in Scotland are held by just 432 owners. It's pretty remarkable. Um, and I feel like for some of our smaller islands, we can start to see that uh, we understand what those issues look like, right? So how did they begin to deal with this? Well, they started, uh, they created a series of acts, and those acts gave community groups first right of purchase when private lands came up for sale. Then the government took um, funds. They put $15 million uh, 15 million pounds of lottery funds and put it towards helping community groups to buy land. So it sits in a fund for community groups to apply to if they want to buy land for community benefit. And so the results have been a number of of land trusts that have popped up. One is called the Salson Estate Land Trust, and it kind of reminded me of the Islands Trust. So this is a network of 22 farming villages, which share, uh, which basically oversees um, the governance um, and the land for uh, a couple thousand people in these 22 small agricultural villages. And it allows them to also use land in common for grazing. Uh, it's allowed them to give their them decision-making powers around land use, renewable energy investments, new housing, schools, libraries, and more. So clearly the land trust model is being used in many different ways all around the world, and it has gotten me really wondering more about Islands Trust, uh, which I didn't even know the basics of, like, do we even call this a land trust? What you know, what is it? How does it function? How it came about? Um, you know, why the 450 or so islands that are in it? Why those and not others, etc.? So we are super lucky on this island to have a neighbor, Sobana, who has lived here for a long time and recently started working with Islands Trust. So I thought, well, rather than just me calling up and having a private conversation on something that I'm curious about, why not have our longtime neighbor come in and talk to us a little bit more about this model and about what the northern islands like Cortez, Quadra, and others might learn from from what's already being done with our southern neighbors. So, Sobana, thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate you being here. For the invitation. <laughs> so I thought maybe you would start today by telling us a little bit more about um, about about yourself and about then the Islands Trust. Like mm-hmm. what what is it? What are we referring to when we mm-hmm. refer to the Islands Trust? Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm happy to. And, and maybe first I'll just um, ground some of our discussion today a little bit. Um, so first of all, I wanted to really thank you for the acknowledgement at the beginning as you were opening. Um, I was thinking to do the same, so I'm really happy that you you do that. I mean, you must do that for all of your shows. Um, but I think especially when we're talking about things related to governance of lands and waters and um, these special places, I think it's really important to ground ourselves in that territorial acknowledgement and to acknowledge um, the stewardship of these lands that has been happening since time immemorial. So thank you for that. Um, And also, um, I wanted to just say, so I started working for Islands Trust um, about a, a little close to a year and a half ago. Um, and it's been such a wonderful experience, and I'm really excited to share because, of course, 
this is the island that I most care about. It's the island I call home. And so as we as I've been working for the trust, I've been really thinking about how some of the issues the trust is is dealing with and contemplating how they apply to this to this island. And so I thank you for the opportunity. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Um, but I, I did want to say also, so I'm going to speak a little bit about what the trust is. Um, it is a special purpose government. And so um, I work on the policy side of the government. And um, as such, in today's discussion, I'm going to speak in a very personal capacity. So I'm going to take off my government hat. Nothing that I say is representative of the positions or views of the Islands Trust. I'll be more sharing um, my personal reflections that reflect um, some deep discussions we've been having at the Trust, but also just some contemplations I've been having over the years about how we steward and, and um, protect these special places and the, these islands. Um, so there's just some grounding. <laughs> um, and then um, I think it's, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a good opportunity to clarify what the trust is, because it's a big mystery, even for people living in the trust area. <laughs> so I'll start off by saying the trust is not a land trust, or I should say it's not a, exclusively a land trust. Um, the Islands Trust as an entity is a special purpose government. Um, it is often referred to as a local government uh, in, in that it acts at that layer of governance, um, but it, is, it doesn't have all the powers of a traditional like municipality or regional district. It, it's a special purpose government, and it has um, a component of it is a conservation land trust, which is called the Islands Trust Conservancy. But I work for the trust, the let's say the government side of the trust, um, which is, which um, has a particular mandate. And so I'll give you a bit of the history just to understand how this form of governance came to be. So in the um, in the late '60s, there was a um, there was a sort of a boom in development, um, an increase in the pressures that the Southern Gulf Islands were facing. Um, merely because of their proximity to major urban centers like Nanaimo, Vancouver, Seattle, Victoria. Um, and there was, um, there was just this inundation of development pressures, speculators, a lot of, um, a lot of change happening very rapidly um, that, was, that was really affecting the nature of the islands, um, both environmentally and in terms of the kind of rural um, character atmosphere and um, at that time there was no real um, effective form of governance for rural islands um, it was largely they were largely governed by organizations that sort of started up on the islands themselves the, the regional districts didn't come into play I think until I think it was 1969 at the late 60s um, and even when they did, even when the regional districts came into being, um, there there was a perception that there was they weren't an effective form of governance for the islands. The islands were just, you know, a whole different being compared to municipalities that were, you know, together in these regional districts, and they were often weakly represented in terms of. Um, you know, proportionate representation in the discussions. So there was a general feeling that the, the islands are not being governed effectively. Um, and this came from islanders themselves uh, lobbying the province. And the province recognized that 
these islands are very significant for the province and for the country as a whole, like let's say the world, um, because of the very unique ecosystems that we have on these islands. Um, and they were seen to be, there's a term that was used, like they were the crown and the jewel, or the, sorry, the jewel and the crown. <laughs> and I think that has some colloidal terms that we might not, <laughs> we might not use that same expression today. But there was, there was an acknowledgement that um, the islands were special and they were too special to um, just put a place at risk um, to market forces and development pressures coming from um, from the urban centers nearby. Um, and it was especially felt, you know, in the southern Gulf Islands that were closer to those urban centers. Um, but the, the islands, I think the island, the Gulf Islands as a whole were recognized for their uniqueness and their importance. Um, and so the province in 19, uh, after doing a lot of kind of public engagement, visits to, visits to the islands, um, and, you know, contemplation on the proper form of governance for the islands, um, there was a special committee of the province, I think it was called a special standing committee for municipal, municipal matters or something like that. Um, it was an NDP government at the time, I believe. Um, that recommended the formation of an island's trust or commission. And so the, tr the word trust is a little bit misleading um, because actually it's, um, it's a form of government. It's a special purpose government um, with the mandate. So it, it, they created a special provincial legislation called the Islands Trust Act, which set out that the object of the trust is to preserve and protect the trust area, which I'll tell you about in a minute, um, for the benefit of the residents of the trust area and of British Columbia more broadly in collaboration with a series of kind of other levels of government and other um, um, partners. Um, and so there was a, unlike local governments, there was a sense of this broader provincial interest. And so, you know, in a typical representative democracy or governance structure, um, it's a very clear relationship that, you know, you're governing the people and and to some extent the place, but it's through that kind of represent, representative model. In this model, um, the primary constituent was the environment. And there was this greater provincial interest and statutory mandate set out by the province to preserve and protect. So it there was this there was a there's sort of a mixed mandate to both, to steward and manage and preserve and protect, um, basically to restrict development um, for the purposes of environmental protection, um, but also for the purposes of stewarding and governing sustainable communities in the Islands Trust area. And there's been a, a long history of a tension between those that I think every local government is facing nowadays with environment sort of climate change front and center. Um, but it's especially, um, there, there has been this kind of higher standard of environmental protection in the island's trust mandate. And so um, as part of that mandate, so it was, they enacted this um, Islands Trust Act and established a federation of um, 13 local trust areas. So unlike what we normally think of as a municipality, in the trust area they're called local trust areas, or we have one case of an of a um, an uh, a local trust area that became a municipality, and that's Bowen Island Municipality. Um, 
And so it reach it the trust area spans the southern Gulf Islands, so like Salt Spring, the Penders, um, to uh, Saturna, Maine, Galliano, um, Thetis, Gabriola, over to House Sound, um, Bone Island, and Gambier, Keats, that area. And then up to, um, it goes as far up as Denman and Hornby. And it's a bit of a mystery. In the trust history, I haven't found an explanation as to why they stopped there. Um, and Nova can maybe fill us in a bit more on, on the history. I've sort of asked her, and and I don't know if this is if this is fact or kind of island legend, or I don't know, but um, I've heard that it was at that time in the, so we're thinking early 70s, right? It was a very different kind of picture. Um, the Cortez and Quadra weren't facing the same development pressures that the Southern Gulf Islands were facing because we're obviously much more remote and, um, uh, yeah, just a different different kind of set of pressures. And I think there was a sense that um, Cortez didn't like the idea of further government involvement. Um, I think that's like a common theme on many islands. <laughs> they generally like to um, have the power to govern themselves. And so there was a there was a sense that Cortez didn't or and Quadra didn't need that extra layer of protection, protective kind of government. Um, but it was so it was set up for this system of a federation, essentially, of 13 local uh, trust area trust areas with um, each with two representatives who are called trustees. So unlike, you know, in a municipality where you're called a councillor in the trust area, they're called trustees because the province entrusted them with this um, very sp sort of special duty and responsibility to preserve and protect the islands. Um, but they function as a government. And what happened was um, eventually people started to donate land for the purpose of the preserve and protect mandate. And so they set up um, what's now known as the Islands Trust Conservancy. It used to be called the Trust Fund Board. Um, as a land trust, which operates kind of at arm's length. It's also a, a product and kind of accountable to the Islands Trust Act, but it's a it's a separate entity. It has a separate governance structure, um, and I think that's for transparency and accountability in terms of um, holding, fun, holding uh, funds and, and property. So the trust itself, the governance side of things, doesn't actually hold land. They are um, primarily a land use planning um, organization. We also do advocacy work. And so basically the trust object sets out um, the, the mandate to preserve and protect. And then we have what's called a policy statement that identifies um, how we attempt to achieve that mandate through ecosystem preservation and protection, stewardship of resources, and um, facilitating sustainable communities. Uh, and so there's policies that apply across the region, but ultimately it's local trust committees, like the local, um, so there's a, the, there's a, it's a, it's a bit of a complicated governing structure. I don't know how much detail you need, but I'll just say that there's a, um, an executive committee that is kind of like an, like a, let's say the centralized oversight committee. Um, and then there's localized um, trust committees that do most of the decision making for each of the islands. 
but they're accountable to the to the regional mandate and to the trust object and the executive so on each local trust committee there's one representative from the the executive committee which is that kind of central um oversight uh, body and so the executive committee is that where the two elected representatives sit so yeah so i'll explain so there's um so as I said, there's 13 uh, areas. Each have two um, representatives. So there's 26 um, trustees locally elected um, on their islands. And they come together as a federation um, called Trust Council. Trust Council is the 26 trustees. And the, the don't know quite how to term this, but it's called the Executive Committee. It's like the it's like this the committee of trust council that's like responsible to that regional mandate is called executive committee there's only four um trustees but they represent the different regions of the trust area they're they're also trustees in their own right on their local islands but they come together um as kind of this uh like a regional oversight committee so it's a committee of trust council. It's just to for ease of efficiency, I think, rather than having 26 trustees approve every decision, <laughs> they have a sort of committee to do that. Um, and then, the, but there's a lot of the decision making capability is at the local trust committee level, and that changed over time. When it first started, that executive committee that I was explaining was actually all provincially appointed um, trustees. And then the local trust committees were locally elected trustees. And I think there was a recognition over time that um, locally elected officials are the best um, able to represent and understand the local context. And, um, and so it gradually became more and more decentralized. This is a very unique governance structure. There's nothing like it anywhere else in Canada and very few examples elsewhere in the world. And so I think when the province first initiated this, they were quite cautious about it. And so they kept kind of a, a tight hand at the beginning with more like provincially appointed um, trustees. And But eventually it became quite decentralized. And now um, Trust Council is the federation, so it's where they all come together. But all of the trustees and all of the, like all of the Trust Council members are locally elected on their own islands. So it's very much a representative body with a regional mandate that is enacted locally with because these islands are quite different, right? You have an island like Salt Spring with over 10,000 um, residents, and then you have an island like Saturna with 300, a population of 300. And so um, there's quite a diversity amongst these islands, but I've also observed um, quite a commonality. And this is what I hope we can chat about today is um, what it is, this the, the uniqueness of rural island governance. And what I've, what I've learned from... Um, some of the discussions that we've been having because right now the trust is in a very interesting um, phase. I think, I don't know if this is unique to the trust, but we are, um, at the moment, we're updating that core policy statement that I was referring to earlier, which is basically a statement of how we, how Trust Council plans to fulfill its mandate. And it hasn't been updated in many years. And so we're having a lot of very deep emotional existential <laughs> kind of discussions right now 
about how to really effectively govern these islands. Um, and the island stress model is one model. It has its faults just like every other governance model. It is constrained by the different layers of jurisdictional power in the province and in the country that all other municipalities are also frustrated by. Um, but I have seen a real um, potential out of this kind of governance structure that I think there are certain things um, that I think I'm interested actually to learn more about how governance works for Cortez because a lot of these questions have have raised questions in my mind is like so how does that model compare to like the regional like our experience or Cortez's experience of the regional district model from my kind of basic discussions with NOBA I get I get the sense that there's like pros and cons to both. Um, but what I really, what I really value about the the trust model itself is just the um, there's just a recognition that rural islands in this area are quite unique, and they share. Um, there's a there's a real potential for knowledge sharing and and like efficiencies of processes and approaches. Um, right now the two main thing two main lenses that we're looking at this policy review through are reconciliation and climate change and those are things that every government is um trying to contend with at the moment you know we're, we're needing to fundamentally shift systems for both of those um with both of those goals in mind and um and it, it it's 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 a big conversation <laughs> so maybe i'll just pause here to see if you have particular questions uh, oh i have so many questions <laughs> and so the first one that um i want to understand so it sounds like the islands trust um i can imagine how it relates to provincially and federally to those levels of government mm -hmm. um and and the benefits uh in that way, but it's harder for me to imagine or understand what its relationship is to the regional district mm -hmm. or districts mm -hmm. even mm -hmm. that it falls within. Um, can you talk a little bit more sure. about that? Yeah, so um, so when the province established this kind of unique governance model, um, it decided that there were it would limit the tools that the trust had. Uh, I would say limit the powers that the trust had, and I think its intention was that the environmental focus could be protected. So it basically gave the trust land use decision making powers, uh, land and water. I would say, um, and it it um, it left the provision of services to regional districts. Because there was a thought, I think, that when you're needing to balance all of those policy priorities, um, it's hard to keep a, a focus on the environmental protection lens. And so that was that was the way they set it up. Um, I have my I have questions as to whether that was the best approach or not, because, um, of course, when we're dealing with these broad issues, um, it can be very frustrating when we don't have the power to enact um you know when we don't when we just don't have the jurisdictional powers uh that we need to fulfill our mandate um and so there's there's i think there are pros and cons to that approach so the, there still is representation at the regional districts i have 
I don't quote me on this, <laughs> but I have the impression that 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 the that, that representation that was lacking before in terms of, you know, a regional district comprises many different municipalities and islands and and it there is not a focus on regional governance of the islands. It's the regional district as a whole. So I get the impression that there's still minimal representation of um, these islands at the regional district because what I hear a lot about is capacity constraints for work that needs to be done at the regional district level. Um, but there still is that in there still that is that um, component. The regional districts are still involved. Um, we primarily take um, take care of the land use plan, land and marine use planning decisions and we when the province enacted the Islands Trust Act it had the vision that the trust would be the primary kind of like it would bring other agencies together because we're we're an agency of the province um, and we work we work with other agencies of the province like the Ministry of um, Forest Lands I, for, I always forget what that acronym is, FLINRO, Forest Lands, Natural Resource Operations, I think it is, um, the Ministry of Environment, like all the all of the, the, um, the Ministry of Municipal Affairs. We liaise quite regularly with these other um, provincial agencies to, to be able to fulfill our mandate. Um, but um, there are these layers and i think this is a challenge i think this is a challenge for re, for all municipalities these days that there are these um provincial there are regional districts provincial layers of jurisdiction and federal layers of jurisdiction um that are all overloaded with the huge challenges we're facing today and especially in the islands like if let's say if we were to become our own municipality, let's say we don't have the same tax base that other municipalities have. And so even just to get the work done or to have enough people to get the work done, there's challenge. It's, it's hard to know like what's the right way. And so this is the way that has, this is the way that has emerged. I don't know if that clears it up. <laughs> and so within the Islands Trust mm -hmm. governmental area, there must be a number of different regional districts mm -hmm. then that are yes. overlapping within that. Yes, there's about seven or eight, I think. Yeah, which which uh, they're all quite different, right? They're all like you have the capital regional district, and then you have um, the Couch and Valley regional district, and um, quite different compositions. And I think some of those regional districts have rural areas, which which share some of the you know characteristics. But still, I kind of maintain that islands are quite unique like islands are i mean this is true on a certain level and not true on a certain level but they're kind of like closed systems um with shoreline all around and that creates a lot of different considerations so for example when you're dealing with an issue like um so an issue that a lot of islands and a lot of communities are facing right now is the issue of um, needing to facilitate more affordable housing. So in the trust area, we we the regional district is um, responsible for services and for provision of things like that. Um, but we can we can influence it through land use kind of decisions. 
Um, and one of the constraints that we face on the islands, it, because an easy way to, so for example, in a city, um, one of the kind of guiding mantras is compact connected and clustered housing is a multifamily dwelling is good for climate change. It's good for affordability, right? On an island, the scenario on a rural island, the scenario is a bit different because um, we don't have we we have closed systems. We have um, we rely heavily on groundwater, um, and um, we have small watersheds. So somebody was telling me recently that you know in a place like Victoria, for example, you could double the density of the urban core and you'd still have enough water because the watersheds are in the souk basin. They're large and they're protected. And so there's that capacity to kind of shift. On an island, on a small island that's heavily dependent on groundwater with small watersheds, with, with it's, it's actually very difficult to increase density um, and still ensure water supply. So there's like, when we think about climate change, um, I often get really frustrated when I go to, so this is a big theme right now that we're, we're planning for. Every government is trying to shift its lens to climate change. And um, I get frustrated when I attend uh, some of the regional, kind of like the, provin the province puts on regional sort of um, knowledge sharing networks and tools and so on. And a lot of them just don't apply to a, to the rural island context. Like I feel like we need very unique solutions and a unique approach. And that's generally that's generally like the mantra for islands. Is <laughs> like we need, and that's why it's so important to have local, locally inspired kind of decision making and solutions, because it's not really a one size fits all approach. So there are there are things that are different here that we need to manage differently and so water constraints is one of them um, we have a huge amount of sensitive ecosystems um, the highest uh, percentage of biodiversity i believe in the country um, a lot of species at risk hundreds and hundreds of species at risk and those things in a in the context of our of an island need to be managed differently than they do even in rural areas of a of a municipality, you know, like even on Van on Vancouver Island. So um, that's one of the things that I feel I feel the benefit of the Islands Trust model is that there is a really a focus. Um, like when I'm in a trust council meeting and I hear the trustees talking about um, sharing, you know, best practices and project ideas and stuff, it's a very different experience than being in a provincial um, forum where municipalities are sharing you know their information and we might be there as part of the group but a lot doesn't apply so um now i can't even remember what your original question was yeah, well i mean i was trying to understand yeah. how it relates and overlaps with regional districts mm -hmm. and um and i appreciate getting to some of the specifics mm -hmm. like water mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. this is just a fantastic example where island communities have almost nothing in relationship with municipalities mm -hmm. and uh and the levels of of bureaucracy start to really break down at least here on this island you mm -hmm. know so for instance uh one of the challenges mm -hmm. with ever change you know f like first of all okay say we wanted to make it so that you could have 
you know, one primary and mm-hmm. two secondary mm-hmm. units on 10 acres mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, like how complicated can it be? And we were mm-hmm. seeing in all of these municipalities that they're starting to allow laneways, they're mm-hmm. doing these, you know, mm-hmm. land use changes, zoning changes. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so if we want to do that here, first we have to convince the regional district mm-hmm. to update our land use um, plan, which hasn't, mm-hmm. our zoning hasn't been updated, I think, in more than 20 years. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we'd have to make changes to that. Mm-hmm. Then we you're only allowed to have, I think, two or fewer homes on the same well mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. you become a, a like a commercial water right. supplier and you have to meet all these very high level standards mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. testing mm-hmm. Uh, which is expensive and has to be done in Courtney and yeah. I don't even know how people would end up doing that mm-hmm. so so there you go mm-hmm. like how, how do we ever begin to deal with yeah. the housing crisis on this island so I like you know, who who sees if we mm-hmm. wanted to change something mm-hmm. like on uh, in the, within the island's trust mm-hmm. if a community was like okay great in this area, mm-hmm. we've deemed that a little bit more density mm-hmm. would make sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We've, like, we've already determined mm-hmm. that there's enough water mm-hmm. that we could do it safely here. Let's mm-hmm. say wherever here is. Mm-hmm. It's you know, the equivalent of downtown Manson's mm-hmm. or um, you know, wherever. How would that go through mm-hmm. the Islands Trust and regional districts and just, mm-hmm. you know, in mm-hmm. province? How does it wind its way through to mm-hmm. for that to actually happen? Yeah, so it's, I will start off by saying it is very complicated <laughs> and it's uh, layers of complexity. I mean, it, it's I have to say there is a general recognition. I feel a strong recognition at all levels of government that there is a very serious housing crisis across the province right now. And some of it is like factors that are far beyond our control. Um, But there's kind of a recognition like we need to do something. Like we need to do whatever we can to address this without um, placing the burden once again on ecosystems and these fragile um, sensitive and like the biodiversity of the area and what we what we have been in trust in the trust area what we've been entrusted to preserve and protect it's a big it's a big issue and the trust the elected officials are just now um discussing this in great detail and this is part of that like existential kind of (laughs) conversation that i was referring to earlier so i don't think i can tell you um the solution that we've come up with but what i can tell you is um some of the issues that I've that have come up through the conversations that I think would be useful for Cortez to consider. So one of them is when we so in the trust area, because we do land use planning, we can influence zoning. So, you know, you were saying like the zoning bylaw or the official I don't know if it's the official community plan or the zoning bylaw haven't been updated in many years for Cortez. I'm just going to answer that. Okay. The the official community plan is significantly more recent than the zoning bylaws. So this, I think the the community plan though is still getting on to Mm. maybe not maybe it's like seven somewhere between seven and ten years old. Okay. And the zoning bylaws I think haven't been updated Mm -hmm. since we've had a Strathcona regional district. So that's been close to twenty years. Oh gosh. um, (laughs) Yeah. Or somewhere in that. Yeah, there are some communities in the trust area that um, are in a similar position. We're right now going through. Um, an official community pa- plan review of all of the OCPs in the in the whole trust area, and they're coming up with some sort of uh, 
common, like uh, the lens of climate change, the lens of reconciliation, um, some of these kind of common modernization um, aspects. And, and that's something that, you know, I, I could talk, I, I don't know, because, no, you know, NOVA doesn't have the control. It's, it's lying with the regional district. And so I think there's, there's some constraints there. But certainly there's some models that she'll, she and the regional district will be able to look at um, in, very soon. Um, but what I was going to say is the, one of the things that I've realized is that when we make site specific decisions, so let's say an affordable housing application comes in, everybody thinks, okay, yes, we need to somehow support these affordable housing, um, applications. Uh, they're often evaluated based on the site itself. Without a full understanding, I, I say I would say, of the whole island. So what I think the trust is moving towards more and more is trying to map out very clearly the whole of the island to say like, here's an area that we absolutely don't want to mess with because it's you know it needs to be protected, and it's better if we don't have anything going on there. Here's an area um, where maybe it's already built out or maybe you know there's for whatever reason there's not there's not as much presence of sensitive ecosystems biodiversity there's a presence of water like maybe this is a this is an area that we can say okay here um, this is a good area for increasing density Um, but there are layers of that mapping that need to happen before you can make one decision because what happens when you don't do that is you make um, you know, one decision after another. And uh, the burden is felt in the environment, in the environment, in the ecosystem, the ecosystem integrity is, is compromised. So we need to have a bet, I think we need to have a better understanding of how interconnected an island ecosystem is, and where the pressure points are and where you know, and that comes from like a whole of island, like you need like data for that. So I don't, I don't quite know how much we already have of that on Cortez, like I know Foci has amazing kinds of mapping of sensitive ecosystems. I don't know if we have groundwater mapping or thing like the layers. So that is where we're moving in the trust because we have a lot of that data. The Islands Trust Conservancy has done a lot of, um, a lot of that mapping. Um, we have amazing kind of GIS systems that I don't even understand, <laughs> but they have layers of so we can see like we're doing a freshwater sustainability strategy right now, groundwater mapping of all the islands. So we have that layer to look at to better understand the whole of the island because what we find is like. If you ask a biologist to evaluate a particular site, it may have uh, enough water for that particular application, right? But w- of course, all beings need water. Like all the the every all the be- <laughs> all the beings in the ecosystem need water, and so when it's important to think about the bigger picture, and I, it gets a bit. Uh, how do I say this? It gets a bit overwhelming because there are there are so many um, constraints, and we have this housing crisis, right, that we need to address pretty immediately. Um, but what will happen if we don't have that bigger picture? Is slowly, little by little, 
the the burden is is always put on the ecosystem this has been this is this is my lens this is purely my reflection um i i kind of acknowledge like the needs that are going to come to these islands in the next uh well we're facing them now but they're going to increase and i think some of the pressures that the southern gulf islands are facing are are coming this way and so i think as a community we have to ask ourselves some of those big questions like what do we want what why do we love this island like what what is it about the island that we love um and how do we ensure that going into the future that is protected so that that's the island's trust like if if i would say anything that we can it's that lens of like what is it here that needs to be protected because it's not just about um the needs of uh, like it's not just about when we think about community this is another big theme it's like because we tend to pit community against the environment and i when i think of cortez and when i think of why i came here when i think of my who the community is here it includes all the species that are that that are also very vulnerable right now right that are the species at risk that have been that also need habitat protection and it becomes a bit um paralyzing to think of solutions but there are there is a lot that we can do so one of the main things is like shifting the land use paradigm this is where i think we really the fact that cortez isn't as developed yet there's like an opportunity to say from now on we we will do things differently so one of the things that the southern gulf or the other islands are thinking about is like do we want to institute a maximum house size do we want to say like in the context of climate change it is no longer appropriate to have mega mansions <laughs> on these like in these rural gulf islands it's not appropriate from an emissions perspective it's not appropriate from an equity perspective a lot of the problems that we're facing part of them are you know market forces and factors out of our control but part of it is because we've inherited a land use planning that was appropriate to a different context and it's really hard to now unravel that and have a a different model going forward because it's like ingrained in the systems of decision making so to have um what <laughs> one of the islands did a a public survey as to like what is an appropriate limitation for like a maximum house size or a footprint and it could be a distributed footprint right so like what but what is like what what is the public sense on this and it's really interesting people have a wide <laughs> range of views on that and for some people it's it's just inappropriate to have any kind of restriction because it's an infringement on personal rights and property rights and all kinds of things like um and i think there's a recognition now that if we're really going to tackle these issues like climate change the affordability the hu- housing affordability um and also i would say reconciliation because another thing that's going on and i don't know enough about the situation on cortez but i can tell you that in the trust area there's an incredible amount of cultural heritage that's being destroyed like even today um through development just and i'm not talking about commercial development or big scale development just like property owners not having any idea 
where their land, like the, the, the cultural heritage and value of their land. So there's a, there's a lot that's happening right now to try to remedy that. But again, there are these like systems that are, that need like this fundamental rethink, right? And it involves other, it involves the, the arc, the archeological branch. It involves like other, many other players. But one of the things that we're doing in addition to that groundwater mapping and um, mapping of sensitive ecosystems and biodiversity, um, we're doing a cultural heritage overlay mapping project where we're starting to actually map out like, because there are a lot of sites that aren't um, already mapped out in for, by the archaeological branch, archaeology branch. Um, so we're doing like a fundamental kind of <laughs> understanding of like what is on these islands? Like what we don't really walk around with that knowledge in our minds. And I don't know the situation on Cortez. I know there's a lot of good work that's being done at Clahoose and but there's, you know, on there's middens all over this island. And I don't know if they're being protected. I, I kind of doubt that they are. <laughs> As, did you want to say something? Well, just say luckily we have our um, our Folk University mm. archaeology professor ah. uh, Brian Hayden who uh-huh. has come in multiple times, mm. and um, he says that basically there's no protections that things are eroding so quickly, mm-hmm. and also recently, right? We've discovered that these island and coastal communities mm-hmm. are where the very first peoples ever came mm-hmm. many thousands of years ago mm-hmm. down to inhabit all of North America. So mm-hmm. the fact that we we are really losing forever. Yeah, yeah. The the history yeah. um, that exists here. And there's, uh, I think it's really interesting as you start to talk about the mapping mm-hmm. and all of that that happens. And I know that Foci has done mm-hmm. some of that, although I was just talking to Helen mm-hmm. a couple of days ago, uh, the executive director of Foci, about her great desire to start doing more Mm. um, mapping, planning, understanding Mm -hmm. of where, like what are the sensitive areas? Yeah. Because every time they want to do a project, they have to go out and find private funding. Yeah. And this little nonprofit that doesn't even have, you know, one full-time staff person (laughs) is supposed to take on these huge planning projects. And just for that alone, I feel like, wow, Mm. how, like, I wish somebody felt like that was something to be funded in yeah. these places. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and so that is happening like at the trust level. And this is what I, sometimes when I find out about things, I, I tell Noble like, we got to get Cortez in the Islands Trust. And I don't know if Cortez would actually want that or not. But um, but there there is that um, that common that common mapping that's happening that I think is really valuable, the groundwater mapping, the um, sensitive ecosystems mapping, the cultural heritage mapping, um, just to to be to get away. So I think one of the things that we're really starting to realize is the need for integrated solutions. So, um, and in the trust area, we're really looking at nature-based solutions nowadays. Just understanding that 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 is actually one of the ways that we have multiple benefits to all of our policies and programming and protective measures that 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 are protective for all of those various layers that I was, I was speaking of. Because sometimes, so one of the big questions nowadays is like, can rainwater replace, um, in terms of like a reliable supply, can rainwater replace 
um, the like if there's not adequate groundwater, can rainwater um, replace that? And there's a lot that we don't know, right? So when we're making decisions, there's a there's a temptation to look to technology and and to look to what are called innovative um, solutions. And I definitely think that's needed. But um, there's also, I feel, and this is maybe, this is definitely my own perspective. Um, at some point, we have to f- realize that like, we can't technologically work our way out of everything, that something needs to change at the consumption level. Something needs to change fundamentally in the way that we live. And I think that on these rural islands, like that is much easier to do. I I have that sense, right? Because islanders live very closely to the land and they feel, um, I, I think, at least this is my experience, that they feel the impacts of their actions and they also value um, I think living simply and and in relationship to the land and that's like a huge cultural um, strength that I think that we have um, that is a product of living here so when we talk about rural island culture this is another thing that's been like a, a, a lot it has been discussed a lot like what is rural island culture and if we're going to protect it like what is it how do you define it I think it really needs to be unpacked because there are some mm, problematic assumptions that people sometimes make about what rural island culture is. Culture for me is not something that's ever, you can't really fix it in time and place. So I've been thinking a lot about this, like what is, what is a rural island culture that you want to protect? And for me, it's all about place. Like this, these are place-based places. <laughs> so the reason why all of us have come here, like, I don't know what your origin story is, but I'll tell you a little bit about, just a little bit about mine. Um, I was living up in the interior at a, in a Buddhist monastery um, near Roche Lake, which is near Kamloops. And um, there would freak, I had never heard of Cortez Island. I was new to British Columbia. This was many years ago. Uh, and I, I kept encountering people from Cortez Island at that monastery. I was living there and serving there, and we would frequently have visitors from Cortez. And there was something about, and so here I am at a monastery with, with a lot of people that share my collective values, like pretty like-minded if you're in a monastery or if you're visiting a monastery. But there was something that really intrigued me about the people that were coming from Cortez. There was something like, I don't quite even know how to name it, but like an energetic signature (laughs) that they were carrying that I just said to myself, like, wherever these people are from, I'm interested in going to that place. (laughs) I'm interested in like, and, and it wasn't so much about their personalities, but it was something that they were, it was just like a way of being that was very different than all the other people um, that I would meet at the monastery. And I moved here without ever having been here before <laughs> and like never and haven't left since because that and that was that was my initial kind of what drew me to this place. I'd never been here. It was carried in the people that are from here. And so um, and then I came here and of course, like, like, I mean, everybody knows how amazing this island is on so many levels. And I've totally fallen in love and I have lived in so many different places. I was very nomadic 
in my younger years and have lived all over the world and I've never felt as at home as I do on this island and so I've been asking myself what why is that like what what it what are the reasons for that and for me the the people that I met were were had been immersed like we're marinating in a certain energy of this island and that was what I felt when I met them it wasn't so much their individual because obviously we're all very different as people we have you know different personalities but there was something that I was like I recognized like that energy and that is what I feel on this island too we're all we have a very diverse community but we're we're like we we've been steeping in this place and this place is a constellation of so many different things. It's a constellation of the history and legacy of the First Nations that have lived here since time immemorial. It's it's the um, it's definitely the the natural environment, the the uniqueness of the island and the in its beauty and um, biodiversity. The fact that it is an island that also attracts a certain kind of of person and affects us in a certain way. And it's also, so I can say, this I don't talk about at Islands Trust, but I, <laughs> but I can say to a Cortez audience that it's also the spiritual um, potency of this island. For me, that's a huge, huge part of why I feel so at home here. And in, in, my co in Buddhist cosmology, so I come from a Buddhist background, um, these kinds of environments, forests and islands, are teeming with unseen beings. And that, you know, you don't necessarily have to believe in that. But there's a lot of people on this island that I think recognize that there's a whole, there's a whole unseen world happening here that affects the people here and the energy of this island. That's at least my view. And that's one of the things that I feel um, needs to be recognized when we're, when we're making decisions about how to govern the island, what, who our community is. I, I consider those that those unseen beings as part of the community. And when I think about my relationship to this place, they factor in the heron that I see in the morning, factors in the orcas that sometimes swim by, factor in the people that I meet and work with, factor in. There's, there's that holistic perspective. So when I make decisions about how I'm going to live and how I think that the island should be governed, it comes from that understanding of like, this is why I love this place and this is what I wanna help protect. And if that bigger picture is kept in mind, I think we make our decisions really differently. So that's, I guess, why I'm saying that one of the questions we need to ask ourselves and maybe even have like a community conversation about is like, what what do we want this island to look like in 20 or 30 years? And let's assume that some of the pressures that we haven't been facing are maybe heading this way. Like things are changing. Demographics are changing. Like even the fact that I can now live here but work for Islands Trust, that wasn't possible even just like two years ago, <laughs> you know? And so it's going to change things. <laughs> Um, and these, this is what our second hour we're going to be focusing on um, is this idea of what I like to, how I like to refer it to is who do we want this island to be for? Mm -hmm. 
Um, who is it that we think gets to live in these places? And I think mm-hmm. that is more and more what Cortez and Quadra are realizing that they're facing and that the southern Gulf Islands, Salt Spring and Hornby and all these places 20 years ago mm-hmm. started mm-hmm. Re- waking up to the mm-hmm. fact that um, really getting a little deeper in this idea of what is rural island culture and who mm is it for mm-hmm. um so i so we're gonna have just a really exciting second hour we're, <laughs> we're talking today about what we can learn in the northern islands the northern northern salish sea islands from the islands trust governance model and we have sobana our neighbor here to lead us through this conversation i'd love to hear from you neighbor you may call in during our little musical interlude to 250-935-0200. You can also try to send an email, but I'm not necessarily as good at being able to get to those. But that email address is the letter U at folku.ca. That's F-O-L-K-U dot C-A. So send us your questions about governance all things related to how we're going to deal with housing pressures, community pressures, environmental pressures, reconciliation, the future, and what we might be able to learn from our southern neighbors. Thank you for listening to Folk U Radio on Cortez Community Radio, CKTZ, and enjoy this little musical interlude so you can call in and ask your questions.
As I was walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Island, from the redwood forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me.
can ever stop me as I go walking that freedom highway nobody living can ever turn me back this land was made for you and me this land is your land this land is my land from california to the new york Welcome back, listeners. You are listening to Folk U Radio on Cortez Community Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM, or you can stream it live at cortezradio.ca. Thank you so much. We have a really interesting show today with our neighbor, Sobana, who's talking about governance and ecology and what we can learn from the island's trust model. The Islands Trust is this unique form of governance that was created specifically for the Salish Sea Islands, but somehow stopped before it got up to Cortez and Quadra, etc. Um, so we're just sort of kind of figuring out and, and taking from that what are what you know what does it mean? What are the differences? What could it mean for Cortez? Um, so it's been really interesting conversation so far and thanks to those of you who called in and emailed in so we've got some some questions too so Sobana um, I wanted to start by uh, um, so rather than starting right away with the questions we had some really great questions mm-hmm. um, uh, we ended the conversation right before the break by talking a little bit about this idea of rural island culture. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of the things that I was really drawn to when looking at the description mm-hmm. of why islands trust exists. And mm-hmm. I think you were sort of getting to um, just this idea of what the rural island culture is mm-hmm. um, and this sort of, you know, like why is it that to this day I always feel like when I run into other islanders, mm-hmm. uh, almost anywhere actually in Canada, mm-hmm. that we have way more in common mm-hmm. than we do different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That we we can all go on and on, right, about mm-hmm. weather and land and ferries mm-hmm. and um, and access to food and and. This other thing, which is how we feel like we actually get our voices heard. Mm, mm. And maybe more and more this becomes such a pressing issue because 
economies are shifting so quickly. The world is changing so fast. And mm-hmm. COVID mm-hmm. has just slammed every island community, no matter how far flung you are, mm-hmm. into this modern day economic situation where we are suddenly these small, tiny economies with these small little island flows pressed up against um, huge economies where now people with way more access to money and capital Mm. are able to work from anywhere and or own land Mm. almost anywhere, irrespective of whether they will ever come and Mm -hmm. live in the Mm -hmm. place or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So these are complicated questions, Mm -hmm. and it's questions as an islander that I always feel like I want to have a voice in. Mm -hmm. And I do not right now feel Mm -hmm. that I do. Yeah. Um, And because I love researching and because I love talking about rural issues on the radio and I love bringing knowledgeable people to talk about them, I've done a lot of investigating into what um, some of the tools that are being used out out there today, whether Mm -hmm. that's zoning, whether that's empty home taxes, whether Mm -hmm. it's um, other forms of investment, whether it's uh, land trust, whether it's new forms of governance, Mm -hmm. whether it's the Islands Trust, whatever, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. What are the tools that we actually have to Mm -hmm. have our our island voice heard. Right. And I this gets I think really to the Islands Trust model because mm-hmm. it I believe it came because there were lots of islanders mm-hmm. who basically saying mm-hmm. our voices are not being heard and the mm-hmm. places we love are disappearing. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that? Um mm-hmm. how actually, you know, you did talk a little bit about the history but has it always been easy sailing? Mm-hmm. Um like you know have has anyone ever opted in later to the islands trust Mm -hmm. um and how are you beginning to deal with this sort of increasing need Mm -hmm. to take on issues that are outside of your mandate Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah those are some big questions and questions that we're discussing on a daily basis i think throughout the trust um so firstly To my knowledge, I don't believe that anyone has joined the trust. I think there have been some attempts to leave the trust. (laughs) So, um, and uh, Bowen Island Incorporated, um, after joining the trust, it became a municipality. Um, There was an effort, or there was a um, a debate that was happening on Salt Spring some years ago. This was before I joined the trust about incorporating, and ultimately they decided not to. They had a referendum and decided not to. Um, and so, I don't. I, I the the concerns that you're expressing about not being heard. I think that many people feel that across the islands, despite the islands trust um, structure. Um, so I just want to be like acknowledge that that it's not um it's not in any me by any means a perfect governance structure it has its um strengths and weaknesses um and i think like before i joined the trust um before i knew like i had never even heard of the trust to be honest before i um before i found out about this job and i was i was so intrigued at the like the idea that a special purpose government was enacted to preserve and protect the environment. I mean, that's really unheard of. <laughs> and, um, and since I've joined, it's been, it's been, I'm, I will admit I'm a governance geek. I like to just think about these things for fun. I have my whole life and I've thought about these things like internationally and now I'm thinking about them locally. And so it really, um, 
it really intrigues me. Somehow the complexity of it all intrigues me. And um, what I would say, so, so here are some of my own reflections. I asked myself the question, um, what would the Islands Trust area look like if the trust hadn't been created? I think it's a really important um, question to ask because um, the pressures that those southern Gulf Islands face in terms of development and speculators and um, all, all the pressures and, you know, amidst um, a growing marine shipping industry that is compromising the waters around those areas in ways like never before. Um, I really, I really feel, and this is maybe just my own view, that the trust has been protected um, to a degree that it wouldn't have if it was in the same structure that like Cortez finds itself now with just regional district representation. Um, and I think there would be people who would maybe disagree with me, but for the most part, I get the sense that people um, are incur are uh, they think positively of the trust, but they are frustrated by the limitations of the trust's powers. And I think the trust also feels that frustration, right? Um, we have been given a mandate, but haven't been given the full toolkit to enact that mandate. Um, and there are, like, I think there was a, a belief that by not giving us the full, full toolkit, we could concentrate our efforts um, and not have the wide range of demands that ordinary municipalities face because there was this higher standard of environmental protection, right? Um, but before, what I was starting to say before, before I joined the trust, uh, a lot of what I heard is like, the trust is really great at environment, or might be really great at environmental protection. It's not great at, at, at governing the communities. Um, and so some of the frustrations that you may feel here on Cortez, I think are felt throughout the trust area. We've, um, we, we try, we try to engage with community and we have quite frankly we have a very small we're a very small organization um and we we're doing a lot like there's a lot of just capacity constraints we don't have the kind of team that like greater vancouver would have or you know it's it's but we face the same challenges and so there's some like i think there's some constraints that i think we need to acknowledge there but also like the province um hasn't given us the legitimacy to really take a leadership role when it comes to governance of the islands. Uh, we can advocate for things, and we do, and we engage in interagency cooperation, but it's so slow. And um, and in some ways, you know, there's issues that we've been working on for so many years that um, we haven't been successful in advocating for. And so at a certain point, um, there needs to be I think more provincial leadership, um, like you know. So at a certain, it's it's almost like this is my picture that's emerging for me. Is like at a certain point, the province said, so the Gulf Islander said, we're not being governed properly. These special places are being destroyed. Do something about it. The province did a study. They agreed, <laughs> and they created the Islands Trust. And in some ways, they were they felt it, it's like okay, we've done our job. Now it's up to the trust. But they didn't give us all the power or legitimacy or jurisdictional power to be on our own. Um, and they have, you know, everybody is dealing with a whole lot of, 
pressing issues right now. And so it's maybe easy to just say, okay, the trust has got it covered and we'll leave it to them. I do feel that um, we need more resources and jurisdictional power um, and authority to really um, take the leadership role that the province has asked us to take. That's that's um, one thing. The other reflection I'd share is that when you look at the history of the trust, so it started, as you said, it started from this outcry from islanders. They instituted the trust and at a certain point, I think it was in like 82 or the early 80s at some point, um, the government changed hands and I think it was the Social Credit Party that came into power and they uh, they had an agenda of abolishing the trust and actually put forward a bill to abolish the trust saying that it was an unnecessary layer of government government um, and that we should go back to the regional district model. And there was public outcry, people like Islanders just flooding the legislature um, saying like uh, speaking against that and tr and instead what they were asking for like so there was a there was an issue there is an issue in the governance but what they were asking for was that the trust be given more legitimacy and authority and jurisdiction not that the trust is is so so I guess what I'm trying to get at is like the trust has a potential that um that everybody acknowledges and that and and that is it has really made a difference but it's not fulfilling its um, complete potential because of these constraints. And so I often think like, what would the trust area be like if the trust hadn't been there? Like if we didn't have this governance structure and I can, I can, I feel pretty confident in saying that um, these islands would not have been protected to the extent that they have been and that the scenario would be quite a lot worse than it is right now. So it's something to consider when you're asking those kinds of questions. <laughs> I want to just define a little bit some of the things that we're talking about mm -hmm. when, because um, I, I notice I'll often use, like, I want my voice as an islander heard. Mm -hmm. And when I say that, to some extent, I want to recognize mm -hmm. that these are minority voices, mm -hmm. right? Like, mm -hmm. we as islanders mm -hmm. will never be mm -hmm. the majority yeah. of of the voices in, in British Columbia or mm -hmm. in Canada. Mm -hmm. So we're talking, and this is how, what we share with other rural and isolated communities, right? Mm -hmm. Is that because we're small, mm -hmm. and if you're outside of a municipality, a municipality has access to tools, money, resources, and a way to communicate and be yes. for you and yes. your needs um, as a neighbor yes. up to the province and up to the federal government. Mm -hmm. But what I found when I started living you know, mm -hmm. out in a rural community mm -hmm. is that actually um, outside of a very, very limited things mm -hmm. that there is nobody taking my needs up to the province mm -hmm. and advocating for them. Mm -hmm. There's nobody taking our needs up to the federal government. So mm -hmm. this becomes an issue for things like um, immigration and do we want be, to have uh, immigrant workers who might come mm -hmm. and do things that we're desperately in need of on mm -hmm. an island. Mm -hmm. um, this might affect housing. Mm -hmm. Like we know that there's affordable housing crisis on the island, mm -hmm. but accessing the tools mm -hmm. for around affordable housing mm -hmm. with the province or the federal government very difficult mm -hmm. transportation mm -hmm. we have 
no way of advocating in any major way for um, anything on our roads, which are all provincially held, and it's mm. just like a little contract that they spend no time thinking about. Mm. Uh, water rights, uh, you know, like mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Um, like so many things on and on that I think, oh boy, I'd love you know someone to mm. to care about the the sort of minority view, and instead, what I often feel like is. Um, islanders are expensive, mm-hmm. right? And if that, if you just look at us as sort of like these annoying people, who, <laughs> if we're going to help intervene in the school, it's like okay, we're we're it's they're always going to need more than their fair share per per student. If we're going to intervene in housing, you know, like it's why are we doing it? It's for a community of one thousand. You have Vancouver out there who's mm. got you know, hundreds of thousands of people all suffering from the same issue. Mm-hmm. Why would we help this tiny little place? And so mm-hmm. um, so that's where I start to get excited. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. wow, if Islanders come together, oh, yeah. then we have a chance to say, we ha- like, just because we don't have the same structures doesn't mean we don't have many of the same needs yeah right yeah we still need affordable housing yeah, we yeah, still yeah. need um you know startup loans we still mm-hmm. need um people to be able to work and survive and educate and etc yeah yeah and and you need them in an island co- um context right like you need them in a, in a way that's appropriate to rural islands that is i think one of the strengths of the trust and so well i would say you know, maybe not. Maybe our advocacy efforts aren't always successful, but sometimes they do make, they do um, influence and make impact. Um, some of the issues. So, so I don't have that perspective because within the islands trust area, um, there is a forum for that. There is a forum to discuss issues that are like when when trust council comes together. That's what they discuss. They discuss issues that are. Um, that are pressing on their islands and sometimes they will instruct staff to enact kind of advocacy efforts so that has happened around things like marine protection so marine protection is not within our direct um you know jurisdiction there is this horrible occurrence i'm not sure if you're aware um in the southern gulf islands of these freighter anchorages that are coming in and basically using the Gulf Islands as a parking lot when the port of Vancouver is full. It is an, it's like, oh my gosh, we could have a whole radio show just about that. <laughs> Luckily, we're too far north for that to happen. But basically what's happening is there's supply chain issues um, that uh, across the country um, that, are, uh, that are felt at the port of Vancouver. Um, and so when ships come through, they're not, they, they have and they have no capacity at the port of Vancouver there are 33 anchorage sites in the pristine fragile marine ecosystems of the of the Gulf Islands where they go to anchor until they can um, you know meet their coming shipment or whatever is demanded in the supply chain and so what we have is like these you know, the size of freighter anch- freighters, right? They're these humongous with pol- with all kinds of pollution, sound pollution, noise pollution, like parked right in front of Islanders' homes. <laughs> it's just, it's absolutely, I mean, it's just, and it, and there's no federal action being taken. And there have been all kinds of efforts by Islanders to kind of lobby like for, for change. 
Um, recently, a, a member of parliament put forward a bill that's now being kind of entertained. But so that's an example of like a common issue that the like you said, we are our voices are not being heard. And there's an effort of whether it's successful or not, there's an effort of the islanders to come together to say we need to lobby together. And they and that, you know, they on that particular issue, they collaborate with um, Vancouver Island um, MPs and others in the area. So there's there's that potential. Um, another area like where we lobby the province is on um, management of private managed forest lands, where we currently don't have um, jurisdiction. Um, but it what we're seeing, um, and you know, just on properties in general, a very alarming trend is um, people coming from different value structures, and this is maybe going back to this idea of rural island culture, um, and for whatever reason, moving to the island and then within days clear-cutting their whole property. like And this is happening in a protected area, right? And we have no power to stop it. It's just, like, for me, it's inconceivable that this can happen on the islands. And so because if if one island were to try to fight that on its own it would be it's a very it would be a very different experience than the trust coming together as a federation of islands lobbying the government for this kind of change right so that's one i think one potential of the trust um and yeah and in terms of minority like minority voice it's i don't it's interesting because i don't have that um I think you're right, and I haven't had that perception because I think of the islands as such an important area, and I think of the fact that the province acknowledged that and created a unique governance structure for that purpose. Um, so there is an acknowledgement of the importance of, of the area, where, but um, maybe not a commensurate sort of um, uh, resources kind of because of this what I mentioned that like oh the islands want to govern in themselves and there is some I, I sort of this is I don't have a fixed view about this because to a certain extent I kind of feel like the islands um, one of the reasons that we're resilient as communities is because of that neglect <laughs> I mean it's like it's a horrible thing it's a horrible thing to say it in that way but I, we have been forced to um, to be to care more about our own governance because we're we're not being you know given the attention that's needed. And personally, I think that's a strength of small island communities is that, especially like in the face of climate change, I think we already have so much resilience just because we have had to. You know, it, we have had to, to and, and it's, I acknowledge the limitations of that, right? Because we, we abide in these structures where we're dependent on, on other, uh, you know, jurisdictions and forms of government. But I also, it's a, it's a tricky thing because you wouldn't want the kind of attention that is going to assume that what works in Vancouver would work here. You don't want that, but you, but you don't want to be completely left alone. Um, and so what I like about the Islands Trust 
um, model is that it is, I mean, there was an acknowledgement by the province, because as I said at the beginning, it was very centralized. And then there was a, an acknowledgement, slowly by slowly, the governance structure changed, legislatively changed, to acknowledge that islanders are the best placed to govern their, their, their own islands. So I don't know if I have an answer for you. <laughs> well, I think you're getting at the um, the the crux of it all, right? Yeah. Islanders, um, we are more resilient because we're more resilient, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. and nobody like you don't move to an island or stay on an island if you uh, like a lot of bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this seems to me to be. The and certainly I've noticed living out here on the northern Salish Sea Islands mm-hmm. like Cortez, um, that often when when bureaucracy does come to us or when government uh, uh, oversight comes to us, it really feels just like you were saying, like mm-hmm. it was not made by islanders yeah. for islanders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so then I think a lot of us end up kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater right. because honestly, I would also, as someone who really also nerds out on governance, <laughs> way prefer just nothing yeah. than, than ill-suited yeah. rules yeah. being applied to us because it doesn't make sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and a lot of how small thrives is just protection. Totally. Protection from those suffocating um, bureaucratic systems. So it's interesting because now I understand a lot more about, the, you know, the Islands Trust and I feel like there is um, – an aspect of protection that's in there, mm-hmm. um, and um, and also like so many places, it's you still have this uh, needing to deal with regional districts that maybe don't always make sense. And not mm-hmm. only that, but you have like seven of them you have to figure <laughs> out within your area, yeah. and then on top of that, you have pro- provincial government, and mm-hmm. on top of that, you have federal government. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I can. Um, but you know, not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, it mm-hmm. does feel like at least you have uh, a kind of solid way to yeah. to you know. And if anything, if I were made queen, yes, um, <laughs> I would want to give you more tools, more tools yeah. to use at the local level. I always think more tools, mm-hmm. um, you know, smaller, smaller. Mm-hmm. And so we had a question that came in over uh, that is related to this, mm-hmm. um, which I think is kind of getting at. Um, how could Cortez Quadra, these northern Salish Sea islands, perhaps begin to collaborate with Islands Trust? And I think what's behind a little bit of this is, could we like feel into or make use of mm-hmm. some of the advantages of the Islands Trust without mm-hmm. needing to get involved in yeah. any more bureaucracy? Yeah, yeah. Um, so what, what's the ways that we can kind of learn at least from what mm-hmm. you're doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so... There's definitely ways to engage, and I know, like, when I, um, in the few conversations I've had with Noba, I've sort of encouraged her whenever it's possible, she's welcome to come to trust council meetings, like, as an observer, um, and, you know, there's there are opportunities built into, so trust council meets every quarter, um, every three, I think that's every three months, um, and um, f- with a very kind of packed agenda every time. But it always includes an opportunity for delegations um, from community and um, a town hall portion. So people can in advance, like, so for example, like if Cortez um, 
had an issue that was like really pressing and they wanted to kind of get on board with other islanders they could make a a a delegation presentation saying like here's an issue that we're facing is there a way that we can um align our advocacy or um are there you know things that islands trust could share that could help us like that's perhaps one avenue um I do feel the need to say, like the islands, it is a representative government. So the the budget and kind of allocation of budget that we have is very limited to the islands that are part of the trust area. But there's a lot of opportunity for for knowledge sharing for sure. And I think um, even even island if islanders were interested, they're they're always welcome to like. I I don't think everybody would be interested in this, <laughs> but they're always welcome to you know tune in to trust council meetings. Trust council also has um, so all of the local trust committees also have um, very regular meetings on particular issues. So there's a lot of, for example, there's a lot of housing projects going on in the island that are or in the islands that are super interesting, where they're really trying to get their heads around like how do we do this in an integrated way? How, like, even just purely within our mandate, how can we facilitate affordable housing? And there's a lot of thinking and community dialogue that's going on at the local trust committee level. And those are, like, because of COVID, all of those meetings are happening electronically. And you can tune in online and watch and and hear the debates that are happening in community. Um, Some really, really uh, good thinking that's going on in an island context, you know. So that's that's one way. Um, we're, we also have been. So I work on this. So I'm not a professional planner. I should say that that although the organization is most mostly comprised of professional planners because it's you know we have a land use planning focus. Um, I work in the the part of the trust that's called trust area services. So we look at the trust as a whole region through and do policy and programming from that perspective. Um, and part of that is a component of education. So we have pretty limited budget, but we have been doing so, for example, in the fall, we did like a climate action series where we brought islanders together to share expertise. So there was like a webinar on um, rainwater harvesting. There was one on ecosystem-based adaptation. And there was one on um, eelgrass. It was called Eelgrass, a Climate Hero. <laughs> and so, um, and those were mostly islanders sharing expertise with other islanders at a very practical kind of either community or householder level. And those are things that are like freely broadcast, which like any islander could tune into. So it might be just like a question of me um, posting things like that on Tideline or, or communicating to NOBA when things like that are happening. Um, so those are some ways, and, and I'd also say that what we're observing is some regional, um, information sharing and coordination groups emerging. So the Southern Gulf Islands are now, um, um, developing a forum which includes the regional district and, you know, the local trustees in that area to really address issues that are are a little bit more unique to that region, like to the Southern Gulf Islands. Um, How Sound has a regional forum. Um, and Denman and Hornby, I think it's just Denman and Hornby, have are part of what's called the Bain Sound Regional Forum, um, talking about issues that are, are kind of pertinent to that area. Uh, 
I don't know if there's scope for like um I don't know how much scope there is. I know that Horn I feel like Hornby and Cortez have a lot in common, um, even in terms of their the sentiments of their population, you know, and so there's a lot of people on Hornby that greatly question the the validity of the trust. Um, and they have I think they have a ratepayers association that does quite a lot of um amazing community work and and it might not even be at the trust level but I think like establishing those island to island um connections uh when you're contemplating like some of the new things that I know that you're involved in um in on the island like that are happening at a community level fostering collaboration because there's just so much that's going on and that's why so back in the 70s when we had all these individual um like community-led organizations and that was pretty much the only form of governance like for these non-incorporated areas there was a feeling like um the regional districts would bring efficiency to that and i do think that there's some truth to that that you know you don't need to reinvent the wheel every time on every island there's a lot that can be shared especially nowadays when it's just so easy to collaborate in that way um so i think there's a lot of scope and uh um yeah i think i think it's it's um it's a matter of creating those community to community connections i think there's already a lot of that going on because some of the people that i've talked to in like salt spring for example mentioned that they're collaborating with people on cortez on climate action projects and so i think there's already a lot of that happening maybe not at a formal government to government level but um just islanders sharing with with islanders um, I always have to kind of, it's hard because I have to keep my professional hat on and obviously Cortez is not a part of the Islands Trust area, but but I can definitely start to think about um, if I know like what's, if I know better what's going on on Cortez, I can also try to think of like who, who to link up with whom, you know, um, things like that. And I need to learn a bit better what's going on here to be able to map that out. So, yeah. Uh, I just love when we start talking about islanders sharing with other islanders, which yeah. is basically the you know the reason raison d'etre of Folk <laughs> University yeah. and the Folk U radio show, mm. um, and this is one of my passions um, and the radio and the internet and Zoom and all these things that we may kind of partially hate like zoom right now <laughs> but also um hopefully you you love the radio all the more and these mm. ways make it so much easier for us little islanders which often feel a little stuck sometimes with you know s- separated by so many ferries and so much water <laughs> yeah. uh, from each other and um, to share and mm-hmm. because really time and time again it is just remarkable how much islanders understand about the daily life of other islanders mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in a way that is really different even if you're in the you know if you're like it really feels like i have more in common i just was on the phone with multiple hornby islanders yesterday mm. we were l- making all the same jokes laughing at the <laughs> same things it was just yeah. <laughs> felt like i was talking to a neighbor in a yeah. way that is not the same when yeah. i go to campbell river no no it's um, not yeah you're right um, you know, but also actually, which it doesn't only, it's not only islands. Like when mm-hmm. I go over to Powell River, mm-hmm. you know, they have those two ferries too. Mm-hmm. So it's really, right. a, <laughs> it's about fairies. It's about fairies. <laughs> <laughs> Fair, you have to believe in fairies. 
then I like that. If you know everything is <laughs> about believing in fairies, yeah. then, you, then you share. <laughs> this has been a really exciting and interesting show. Um, I really appreciate that we have you here to kind of just share, you know, pros and cons to be able to talk really honestly about. Mm. Um, you know, models and successes and things that can feel like they are within mm-hmm. um, our our reach uh, in some way. So mm-hmm. thank you. And I'm wondering if you have, you know, last words of advice or encouragement or mm. um, about, you know, for, for others up here in the Northern Salish Sea. Mm-hmm. So as I said um, before, we're going through this um, process right now of kind of like basically updating the vision of how we do what we do. And it's led to some really kind of interesting discussions, engagement with communities. And and um, and what I would say is um, if there's like, if there's like one thing that I would say for the people who are involved in the governance of this island is um, remember, uh, have the bigger picture, I guess is what I would say. It's like really keep your eye on the bigger picture of um, why this island is is special. And, you know, going back to your question about rural island culture, like really unpacking like what what that is, like what because people people love these islands and, and we tend to love our own island for very specific reasons. And I think it's important, like so I'm a I'm a big picture kind of thinker and I recognize not everybody thinks like this, but I think it's important to have that higher level vision in mind when you're thinking about governance, because oftentimes you make decisions that you don't, when they come together, um, things change in a way that you hadn't necessarily expected. And so when having that, that bigger picture lens of like, and that, and that might, I think that's a community conversation to have, right? I don't think one person can say why, why the island is special or what rural island culture is. It's like having those conversations to, and, and doing the, having the knowledge. So both the scientific knowledge, the indigenous knowledge, like just the, the ideas of how we understand this place, um, come together and be integrated before you sit down to make decisions and and um and you know set up structures of governance to have that like bigger picture in mind because what I what I find um is that in the absence of that common understanding um decisions get made that are very rooted in time and and crisis and um pressure and uh fear I I think of like what does this mean for me and some of that is we're gonna have to let go of some of that as a community when we think about how we are governing in the face of climate change and um reconciliation and like we really need to think differently and examine some of the beliefs that we've been holding. So one example is like, we have a sense, so, you know, some of the voices of Islanders, that that notion of bureaucracy not being our friend, I think that needs to be unpacked a little bit and like really kind of evaluated, like any bureaucracy, like anything can be um, 
a tool or it can be like a weapon, you know, <laughs> and uh, we want to maximize the, the power of um, regulatory frameworks to protect what we want to protect without being, um, without being, uh, what's the word, like oppressed by those structures. There is a balance to be struck there and it requires a bit of like, I think, common understanding and 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 a common um, agreement that we're going to move forward in a different way um but it's rooted in that kind of big picture kind of understanding of what what is valued on this island um and and how can we come together to in the words of the island's trust object to preserve and protect <laughs> That is so inspiring. Thank you so much for sharing uh, this incredible um, and interesting model with us. And um, I feel I feel inspired and in, like that there are some uh, options for us. And I am really excited to be in greater community with other uh, island and uh, and isolated um, places. So I hope that we can figure out a way together neighbor neighbor to expand our idea of neighbor thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of folk you radio here on cktz 89.5 fm i always love hearing from you so let me know what you thought about today's show and what you would like to hear about from your neighbors in the future you can do that by sending me an email to you the letter u at folk you f-o-l-k-u dot ca check out this or other past episodes at folku.ca on the web think that's it for another edition of folk you radio if you'd like to learn more about folk you or subscribe to our podcast series visit us at folk you ca that's f o l k u . c a folk u is produced at cktz 89.5 fm cortez radio .ca my little brain's almost always got something lame it's got to say this show is brought to you by the local journalism initiative the program funded by heritage canada and administered through the Community Radio Fund of Canada. It's embarrassing all the stupid things I can't